0: Well, good morning, everybody. It is great to be back in the book of 1 Samuel with you. And I want to ask you to grab a Bible and open up with me to 1 Samuel chapter 30. Today we're concluding our series in the book of 1 Samuel after having been in this book now for a handful of months. And as you turn and you think about the book as a whole, you think about the fact that 1 Samuel in some ways is a tale of two kings. King Saul and the future king, David. King Saul is the king that the people chose for themselves, even against the wishes of God. Later, God would anoint a king for himself, a king named David, as a blessing to his people, even though they didn't deserve it, and even though they didn't even knew that they wanted it. But he would establish for himself, through this king, a kingdom that would last forever. And as we near the end of the book, we see a string of events that are happening that cause a level of uncertainty about God's people and about the interaction of God with those people. We see that King Saul is nearing the end of his life and in distress and desperation, having rebelled completely from the Lord, turns to seek counsel from the dead through the use of a medium. Conversely, We see King David that continues to strive, even though on the run and even though in a lot of difficult situations, to seek and to trust the Lord for his days. And by the time we get to the end of the book, the final chapter of the book shows us that King Saul, in the midst of his rebellion against God, dies on the field of battle against the Philistines. But what about David? What happens to him next? Does the fact that he and Saul are now separated mean that his life will automatically get easier? Well, not necessarily so. Because even as we near the end of this book, we see that this anointed king is still in great distress and great trouble. But how he responds in the midst of that distress points us to something about what kind of king he would be, what kind of kingdom would be established, And what kind of eternal kingdom that God would institute through the line of this King David. And so let's read 1 Samuel chapter 30 together. Please follow as I read it aloud. As we see how David responds. It says, Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire. And taken captive the women, and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, and their wives and sons and daughters were taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no strength. David's two wives also had been taken captive, and Noam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each of his sons, for each of his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and surely rescue. So David set out, and the six hundred men who were with him, and they came to the brook Bezor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued he and four hundred men, two hundred stayed behind, who were too exhausted to cross the brook Bezor. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David, and they gave him bread, and he ate. And they gave him water to drink, and they gave him a piece of, a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights." And David said to him, To whom do you belong, and where are you from? And He said, I am a young man of Egypt, a servant of an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. He had made a raid against the Negev of the Sherathites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negev of Caleb. And we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you to this band. And when he had taken them down, behold, they were spread abroad all over the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of the great spoil that they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down, from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped, except four hundred young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks, and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, This is David's spoil. And then David came to the two hundred men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook Bezor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all of the wicked and worthless fellows among the men had gone out with David said because they did not go with us we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered except that each man may take and lead away his wife and children and depart but David said you shall not do so my brothers with what the Lord has given us he has preserved us and given into our hands the band that came against us who would listen to you in this matter for as his share is who goes down into the battle so his share shall be who stayed with the baggage they shall share alike and he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day and when david came to ziklag he spent part of the spoil he sent part of the spoil to his friends the elders of judah saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel, and Ramoth, of the Negev, and Jatir, of Aroer of Sithmoth, of Eshtoma, and Rakal, and the cities of the Jerhamelites, and the cities of the Kenites, and Hormah, and Borashan, and Athatash, and Hebron. And all the places were David and his men. David is under considerable pressure. And it's interesting, as we see in this account, often in a battle story, the greatest point of tension is around the battle itself. But here, it seems like the greatest points of tension come before the battle and then after the battle. We're nearing the end of the book, and we saw that David was in a pinch... He had tethered himself in the previous chapters to the Philistines for protection. He was fleeing from the oppression of Saul. And the Philistines nearly asked him to fight against his own people, against Israel, in an attempt to kill them. But at the last moment, they changed their mind, and they released David and his men from their service. And they were on their way. Relief, (laughs) But the relief was short-lived because as they made their way back toward their encampment, they saw from a distance that something wasn't quite right. The smoke was billowing up over the horizon. Their pace quickened. And as the city came in to their viewpoint, their fears had been realized. The absolute worst had happened. While they were gone, the Amalekites came and raided their city and had taken all of their wives and all of their children and all of their possessions, every single one of them gone. Shock and grief overtook the men. And it might be easy to read a historical description like that without placing yourself in this situation. But for those of you that have experienced grief, those of you who have experienced tragedy, you know that the emotion of this situation immediately goes from zero to 100 as you come home and everything that you love has been taken from you. The most important people of your life, you will probably never see them again. And we get a glimpse of the emotion in verse 4 when it says, they wept until they had no more strength to weep. And then, not long after, it doesn't tell us how long it took. It's simply one verse or two verses in the Bible. It seems that their grief turned to anger. (laughs) As it says that David, verse 6, was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. When they came to David, these men a number of now months ago, They met him at the cave of Adalim, and they were described by a variety of ways. They were in debt, they were outcasts, they were on the fringes of society, and they were described as being bitter in soul. (laughs) And now, after all of this, all of the ups and downs of following this anointed one of God, their state is back to where they began. They're bitter in soul. And it's interesting, isn't it? How often it holds true that when things go poorly, when tragedy strikes, when we experience great emotional pain, we almost always look for someone to blame. (laughs) Why is that? Maybe it's because we want justice, or because we want vengeance, or, or most likely it's because we're trying to make sense of something that is incomprehensible to us. So you see this happen here, and the voices are muttering through the camp. David led us to follow the Philistines. David kept us away from our families for too long. David, David, he cost us everything. When in the midst of grief, looking for someone to blame is not the most helpful way forward. It nearly led all of these people to turn against the anointed one of God. And it can do something similar to you. And so now we have a picture, the very beginning of the story of the future king of Israel. The one that's supposed to be lauded and mighty. The one that can be rejoicing in the demise of Saul, his pursuer. But he himself is under great distress. The greatest grief as his family has been taken from him and the greatest fear over the loss of his own life by his own people. How he would cope and what he would do next would tell us something about this king and about his kingdom. And verse 6 gives us this little short phrase as to something that's almost so easy to pass over but it lets us know what David is made of. It says, look at it with me. The people are bitter in soul, each for his own sons and daughters, but David strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. When the crisis and the grief and the fear and the tragedy of threat are bearing down on him, he strengthened himself in the Lord. And here we see something very important for us in two ways. Number one, if God's anointed, if God's chosen king, if the one who would be establishing the kingdom forever would experience such tremendous fear and grief and threat himself, then you can almost be sure that we will experience fear and threat and grief as well. We're so tempted to think that when, when we have difficulty that God has abandoned us altogether. Or we have great emotional pain that clearly God is punishing us for something. But that's not always the case. And when we do experience those things, how should we cope? Some try to cope by self-medicating, by creating a numbing effect so that more time passes And they can start to feel their equilibrium balance. And so they turn to the bottle. Others try to cope through a series of positive self-affirmations. Positive self-talk. I'm going to get up today and I'm going to do what I have to do because as the old skit goes, I am good enough. I am smart enough. And doggone it, people like me. But when you are overcome in distress, strengthen yourself in the Lord. What does that mean? Well, we can tell you what it doesn't mean. Strengthening yourself in the Lord is not a quick fix. It's not some kind of gospel magic. It's not some sort of mystical spiritual experience. Strengthening yourself in the Lord is not simply going into your car and turning on your favorite worship band and getting yourself in the right emotional mindset. It might be a band-aid, but it's not the solution. Strengthening yourself in the Lord is not having it out with God because somebody once told you he's big enough and he can handle it. So you can be angry with him and say hard things to him. No, that's not it. Strengthening yourself in the Lord is remembering God's promises and then doing His will. Strengthening yourself in the Lord is remembering in the midst of your greatest pain or your greatest turmoil, remembering God's promises and then, regardless of how you feel, doing His will. And it requires a level of personal faith to do that. This is where the idea of just simple, distant, religious belief often fails us. It's difficult to rely on a structure of distant belief. It's much more tangible to rely on a person. A person who gives you great promises again and again and again that he, if you are his, will never leave you nor forsake you. That he will forgive you of your sins and remove those sins as far as the east is from the west. That even as David writes in Psalm chapter 30, that though there is pain in the night, joy comes in the morning. Promises that God himself is working out his purpose and his plan even in your life to bring you to himself forever. And as you remember his promises, and you force yourself to do it, you begin to remember elements of his character. That this God is not against you, that his loving kindness is displayed to you, that he is unchanging in his ways, that he is faithful to fulfill his purposes. That this God that we worship has the perfect balance of of love and justice. So you strengthen yourself in him. And then you do his will. And in the fog of grief or despair, the question arises, well, I don't know what his will is. I don't even know what to do next. And we say it with some regularity. That's when you do the next right thing. (laughs) Because it's hard in this life sometimes to know what God wants you to do specifically, but he gives us more than enough of what we are to do in the trajectory of our life in the Scripture. And so when we don't know what to do, we do the next right thing. We seek to glorify him and follow him by doing that. And so that's what David does. When you look at verses 7 and 8, you see how immediately upon strengthening himself in the Lord, he seeks the Lord for his next course of action. Verses 7 and 8, he calls the priest, he brings the ephod, he inquires of the Lord, should I pursue them while I overtake them? The answer comes back immediately, yes, you should pursue for you will surely overtake and you will surely res- rescue. And it's amazing how in this series of just a few short verses, David and all the men go from weeping to the point where they have no strength left in them to rage to the point where they want to kill the anointed leader to now all of them getting up and springing to action. They heard the word of the Lord, and they're refreshed and strengthened as they put it into action. And so he calls the men to arms. They ride for a little while, but then there seems to be a bit of a problem. 200 of the 600 men are too exhausted to go on beyond the brook Bezor. Now, 200 out of the 600, one-third, so it's a lot. But to still have a small army of 400 men, you think, would be pretty good. Until you begin to conceive of the size of the people that they're fighting. In which it later says in the chapter that almost no man escaped, except for 400 young men or camels. But this is now 400 on thousands, probably. If there's ever a time to just buck up and have an energy drink, it's right now. (laughs) I mean, get a good meal in you and let's go. You're warriors for crying out loud. You're going to stay behind right now? We're going after our ladies. We're going after our kids. And now you're going to stay behind? But the men go on leaving 200 behind. They come across an Egyptian man wandering in the wilderness. He had been a slave to one of the Amalekites who had raided David's city. They show kindness to him. They give him food. They give him drink. And then he tells them where to go. I mean, what are the chances of that? Off into the wilderness we go, hey, look, here happens to be a guide for us. They happen to come across this random person who happened to be abandoned by the enemy, who happens to know what they did and where they were and where they were going. What are the chances of that? None. But God had promised that they would overtake and that they would rescue. And here we see that he providentially orchestrates that to happen. And only God And so it's amazing. They bring them to the point of the battle. And look at verse 16 with me, just a couple verses, verses 16 through 18. It's a short-lived battle. He and the army ride up upon them. They're spread throughout the valley, it says. They were spread abroad all over the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil that they had taken from the land of the Philistines. And from the land of Judah. These men had been raiding for a while. And now it was time for the party. But David struck them down. From twilight until evening of the next day. And not a man of them escaped. Except for 400. Mounted on camels. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken. And David rescued his two surely the glorious reunion was real surely the lord had provided them with everyone and everything that had been taken and as the wives embraced their husbands as rescuers as the children ran to their fathers joy and elation fills the camp there was pain in the night but joy comes in the morning They were taken from the brink of slavery and brought back to freedom. They were lost and now they were found. God had provided and David had led them to a great, great victory. But even in the midst of great victory, the self-interest of the human heart shines through. And as they take their wives and their children and their possessions, and they bring them back to the 200 who had stayed behind. We see the description in verse 22 that all of the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone out with David had a point of contention. (laughs) You might remember wicked and worthless fellows at other points in this book. Sons of Eli. Hophni and Phinehas were described as wicked and worthless fellows. Nabal, the husband of Abigail, described as a worthless fellow. And now the wicked and worthless fellows and their self-interest, just like the self-interest of Hophni and Phinehas, just like the self-interest of Nabal, show themselves to be true, as it says in verse 22, because they didn't go with us, They will not receive any of the spoil that we have recovered except that each man may lead his wife and his child away and depart. But David said, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. And so notice the difference. This moment right here Is the crossroads of this entire account. Notice the difference between what the men say, what we have recovered, and what David says, what the Lord has given us. The men had a theology or a philosophy of works that says you only get what you earn, or you get maybe what you deserve. And that's the way the world works. We get what we work for. If you don't work for it, you don't get it. Quite frankly, to have a philosophy of works like that, you must think very highly of yourself because surely you dismiss all the other things that people have provided for you along the way. But David has the logic of faith which fixes upon what the Lord gives to us. The Lord provided this Egyptian guide in the middle of the wilderness. The Lord provided victory in the battle. The Lord provided the return of the families. And when you go through life and you look to everything that the Lord has provided for you, you cannot help but marvel at his grace. And so you see that King David right here is becoming, before their very eyes, the king of grace. Because of grace... He recognizes everything that God has given. And because of that grace, he says, we exercise grace to the ones around us. It wasn't ours in the first place. God gave it to us. And so every man gets his share, even if he didn't fight. People don't just get what they deserve. They get much more than they deserve. That's grace grace of the king blesses the entire kingdom. And David shares this logic of faith and this dependence upon God that we see woven throughout the entire Bible. The Apostle Paul expresses it so clearly. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 7, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And then if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? The grace of God giving everything that we need. Many of our students have started college these last couple of weeks. Some are still going away in the upcoming week. And as college is starting, I was thinking the other day about that and was reminded that statistically, Stanford University in California is one of the most difficult schools in the country to get an acceptance letter from. A couple years ago, the university updated their admission standards, and they stated that um, only 5% of applying students are actually accepted. In 2017, 42,497 students applied, and 2,000... 140 were accepted. And on their website, they begin to give students a realistic picture of the answers to the questions that they have regarding acceptance, what's the academic standard that you need to be accepted to Stanford University, and it states that an ACT score of 33 or higher will put you in the top 50% of applicants. However, the average score for accepted students is 35. perfect score, of course, is 36. Accepted students will also need an average SAT score of 1,520 out of 1,600, an average GPA of 4.18 out of 4.0, a resume of extracurricular activities, leadership qualities, references, and recommendations, and then, of course, the new student, upon acceptance, will have to pay Stanford University $60,000 a year. In conclusion, if you want to get into Stanford, you better be perfect or very close. In contrast, if you want to get into the kingdom of God, you need to know that God accepts people, accepts sinners not on the basis of their amazing accomplishments or their academic prowess or their wonderful works, but he accepts people into his kingdom Solely on his mercy and grace. The burden is lifted. The strength is his. It's not yours. The obligation to see it through is his. It's not yours. The power to make it happen is his. And you don't deserve it. The world says you get what you work for. And God says you can have what I give you. And I give very very generously. That is grace. The grace of the king blesses the entire kingdom. And again and again the Bible speaks of this grace and for those of us who maybe don't know Jesus as our savior, the the idea of His grace is core to your understanding of relationship with Him. And for those of you who do know Jesus as your Savior, it's so easy to write that off as another theological or biblical term without realizing it. Without this end, never-ending flow of God's grace, you will never have His presence or His acceptance. First Peter 5.10 says, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Ephesians 2.8, a famous verse about, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Not of your own doing. It's a gift of God. A British conference on comparative religions was held, and experts were discussing whether any one belief was unique to the Christian faith in reference to other religions. And the debate went on for some time among scholars until C.S. Lewis walked into the room. And when Lewis inquired about what all the fuss was about, he was told that the topic was Christianity's unique contribution among the world religions. And it is said that Lewis quipped, well, that's easy. It's grace because you can look at any religion of the world, you can look at any philosophy of the world, and they all come back to a core idea of you doing something to earn the favor of another. You get what you deserve, and that's it. If you work hard, you get good return. If you don't, you will not. Only in Christianity is the emphasis put on what God has done for you by his grace. The grace of the king blesses the entire kingdom. And as you take a step back in this whole book of 1 Samuel and try to put all the pieces together, you see a story of two kings who in their sharp contrast to each other point us to the eternal king. Think about it. The people's king was Saul. God's anointed king was King David. Saul was seen as the king who sought to take matters into his own hands, to make it happen, to rule as a worldly ruler should. David was the king that was seen to rely on the Lord for things to happen. Saul was the king that was seen as insecure and seeking his own reputation and his own power to protect those things. David is seen as... The one that when his reputation is questioned, he cared more about his reputation before God than he did before men. And when his life was threatened, and when he was distressed, chapter 28 tells us that Saul rebelled against the Lord, consulted the dead, and engaged a medium. in Desperation. And when his life was threatened, and when he was distressed, chapter 30 tells us that David strengthened himself in the Lord in the midst of his great trial. Saul was known as the king who would take, who would take, who would take. And David, the king who would give. He would be the king of grace. And that all points us to the kingdom that established through him and to the eternal king of grace, King Jesus, who would usher in the kingdom of God into this world and see it through until it is fully complete. He is the king of grace. He sacrifices willingly. He freely forgives. He provides generously to those who follow this king and gives much, much, much more than we deserve. And so it begs the question, and the whole book of 1 Samuel begs the question, who will be the king over your life? Which kingdom will you function in? The leaders of the world give a very attractive offer. Potential wealth, political power, the offer to make a difference in such a fashion that everyone can see. But in the end, these kings will simply give you what you deserve. Nothing more, and nothing lasting. The systems of our culture or the kingdoms of our time give an attractive offer. Ongoing entertainment, intellectual stimulation, the promise of physical comfort in this life. But you must fall under the rule of the whims of the culture around you. You get what you work for. Nothing more. Nothing lasting when you follow the rule of King Jesus and when you decide to function in his kingdom you don't get what you deserve you get so much more you get grace Sir Edward C. Byrne Jones was a prominent 19th century English artist, and one day he went to have tea at the home of his daughter. And as a special treat, his little granddaughter was able to join them at the table and sit next to her grandfather. But she misbehaved. And in the training of the child, as she misbehaved, her mother made her stand in the corner with her face looking at the wall. Being a well-trained grandfather, Sir Edward did not interfere with the grandchild's training. The next morning, he arrived at the house of his daughter's home with paints and a palette. And he went to the wall where the little girl had been standing the previous day, and there he began to paint pictures. He began to paint a kitten chasing its tail, a lamb crossing a field, some goldfish swimming. He painted both sides of the wall in the corner where she stood. So, as or if she needed to stand in the corner again, at least she would have something to look at. If you have not put your faith in Christ, you need to know and experience the grace of God to be in relationship in this kingdom. But if you have put your faith in Christ, You need to know that when a Christian commits sin and is put in the corner, God himself does not send him to hell. When a child of God sins, he does not fall from grace. Just the opposite is true. He falls into grace. If your particular sin is confessed, God has restored you. And when God put you in the corner, he went there and he painted a picture of his forgiveness and his mercy because of his grace. And grace makes all the difference. The grace of the king blesses the entire kingdom. And if you are a member of that kingdom because you follow King Jesus, then his grace blesses you. It is my most sincere desire that you know and feel and fully appreciate the depth the unending well of God's grace to you and as you experience it it allows you to trust him all the more to more confidently follow him to not be living in ongoing fear about what this king will do next or the uncertainty of tomorrow, and as you feel and know and drink deeply of the grace of God, that it allows you to be exceedingly gracious to other people. Because what do you have that you have not received? What do you have that God has not given you? He's graciously given you everything that you need. And so for that, we thank him. Let's pray together. Father, may we know in our minds and feel in the depths of our souls the wonderful gift of your grace. May in our times of trouble and despair we rely upon the promises of you and your character. May as your kingdom is established among us all the more, may we be followers of the King. And as we sin, as we fall short, we look to the pictures of your grace in King David and even more pointedly in King Jesus. That your love and mercy is unending. And that you not only give us what we deserve, but that you give us so much more than we deserve. And we thank you and praise you for that.